Hello and welcome into this week's edition of the Floor Slap Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Sean. College football is officially in full swing. We had a spectacular week one slate of games across the Big Ten and across college football. We have an absolutely loaded uh, slate today. We're going to recap some of the Big Ten games we saw in week one, uh, give out game of the week, team of the week, and a few helmet stickers for spectacular individual performances. I also have a few thoughts on uh, teams we saw play this weekend outside of just the Big Ten, and then we're going to get into previewing week two's slate of games, and we have a lot of really great games to get through there. So, packed episode today, let's not waste any more time, and let's jump right into it. This is the Floor Slap Podcast. All right, so first up in this episode, we're going to recap a few of the Big Ten games we saw go down in week one. And to kick things off, we're going to start with the game that kicked off the 2023 Big Ten football season, Nebraska at Minnesota Thursday night. Definitely wasn't the prettiest game to watch, but it was a really competitive one um, and a really painful, almost poetic loss for Nebraska to kick off uh, their season and uh, the new reign under Matt Rule. You know, they had the ball in Minnesota territory, less than a minute left in a tied game. Figure they can set up for a game-winning field goal. Worst case, it goes to overtime, but instead, uh, uh, an interception by Tyler Newbin, where Jeff Sims really stared down his receiver, set Minnesota up for a game-winning field goal. Um, but a few positives from a really painful loss for Nebraska was the physicality up front on defense was night and day compared to last year. I thought they looked uh, more stout up front than they ever did under Scott Frost. Their corners did get beat a few times. Minnesota does have some really great receivers. They have um, really deep at that position. But all in all, I thought their secondary looked more prepared for the 3-3-5 and just all in all more well put together than I would have expected coming into week one. Offensively, you know, Jeff Sims did make a few really, really great throws. And he, as long as he's healthy, he's always going to be a problem running the ball. He has plenty of experience running option plays and RPOs. He can scramble. He's a really great athlete. But mistakes, as has been the case throughout his career, really cost them. Um, he had three turnovers. Nebraska had four as a team. And that's really what the difference was in the game. Um, so as far as what it means moving forward in this season, um, Nebraska is not going to be contending for the Big Ten West. I think some really optimistic Husker fans thought that might have been the case, but after what we saw week one, I, can, I think we can safely say they're not going to be in the thick of the Big Ten West race come um, November. However, there were signs that I think Matt Rule is getting this team on the right direction. Like I said, the physical, physicality up front was really great to see, and I think their defense is way farther ahead than I would have expected. Um, so I think you know the prospects are good for Nebraska heading into you know, 2024 and beyond, but I think Nebraska fans definitely have to kind of temper expectations for what can happen this year. Bowl game is still on the table, but it's going to be tough. Um, moving to Minnesota, the pass defense was really, really strong. Um, Tyler Newbin and Trayvon Jones each looked elite. It could be one of the conference's best cornerback safety duos. Ethan Kaliak Manis, he has a cannon. Man, it looks like he can just flick his wrist and throw it out of the stadium. And he made a few really good throws, but he has to still be more consistently accurate. You could tell he just doesn't quite have a handle on that ball. Honestly, he kind of reminds me of a young Josh Allen. When I say that, I am not calling Ethan Kaliak Manis Josh Allen, but um, you know, they're both similar size. They both have kind of wonky throwing motions and both have absolute cannons. But when Josh Allen was in college, he was kind of the same way. He had a trouble, you know, reeling in his accuracy. When he was drafted, it was pretty much done entirely on potential. So I think Ethan Kalik Manis could develop into a really good cornerback, uh, quarterback. 
he could have a really good 2024 season. But as far as, um, you know, what it means for, for this season, I didn't, when I watched the Nebraska Minnesota game, I didn't get the feeling that we were watching two teams that would compete for the Big Ten West. Um, my preseason record predictions for this team, I said Nebraska would go five and seven, Minnesota would go six and six. And honestly, after watching that game, I feel like I was pretty spot on. Um, I get the feeling we are watching two teams that are going to be competing to get to a bowl game rather than get to Indianapolis. Um, I think both, I think both teams are in a good position as far as kind of gauging how they'll be in 2024 as we move into this new era of college football. I think Nebraska and Minnesota can still both be competitive in the Big Ten, but as far as 20, the 2023 season goes, um, I, I didn't see a whole lot from Nebraska or Minnesota um, that made me super confident. Minnesota's offensive line, I think, was my biggest concern. It's hard to tell whether or not Nebraska's defense really is that good or Minnesota's offensive line is that porous. It's probably a little bit of both. We'll find out as we as the season continues. But um, I thought Minnesota would have, you know, at the very least, a top seven you know, offensive line in the, the Big Ten um, in the top half of the conference. But they got dominated. They could not run the ball. And the absence of Mo Ibrahim... Um, was noticeable. They brought in Sean Tyler from Western Michigan, but I don't know if he can shoulder that run game all of his, all himself. And Ethan Kalik Manis, like I mentioned, he could. He's a nice young quarterback. He's got talent. I think he has a bright future, but he's not good enough to carry this offense on his own. So Minnesota's offensive line really has to step up. Um, it was a great game, but like I said, I think we were watching two about five hundred football teams when um, on Thursday night. Moving on to the game we saw Friday night. Michigan State hosting Central Michigan. Uh, Michigan State, I think, was one of my biggest winners of week one as far as playing above uh, where my expectations were heading into 2023. They got off to a slow start in that game like a lot of teams did across the country, so you can't really blame them for that. But the defense did look fantastic throughout the game. They held Central Michigan to under 100 total yards, under 3.5 yards per play, and the pass defense might have finally turned it around. I thought they looked as good as they had Um under Mel Tucker. Uh, offensively, Noah Kim eventually settled in. He got off to kind of a rocky start, but he throws a really pretty pretty ball, and receivers had a few ridiculous grabs. They were making plays I didn't think Michigan State receivers were capable of. I thought that was going to be one of the weaknesses of the team, but they have some playmakers there. Um, the offensive line controlled the line of scrimmage, and uh, Nate Carter, who transferred over from UConn, he looks to be their new starting running back along with uh, Jalen Berger. Um, but Nate Carter looks like they, a gem that they got out of the transfer portal. Not quite, you know, Kenneth Walker level, but um, having a, a consistent running back like that that can churn out tough yardage and kind of open up this offense, I think is going to be key for Michigan State in 2023. Um, but all in all, it was a really great performance by Michigan State. They easily covered that 14 and a half point line uh, like I thought they would. And they were one of my biggest risers from where I thought they were ending the spring, heading into the fall. Um, I really liked kind of what I heard and what I saw out of their fall camp, and they looked to be a lot better than I had given them credit for earlier this year. So I'm not sure they're quite at the point of challenging Ohio State, Michigan State. Um, I mean, sorry, Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan in the East this year, but who knows? This team could be capable of pulling off an upset. They do host Michigan this year. Um, and that could be a more interesting game than I had thought. Um, they also play Maryland and Washington this month, so you know it's hard to gauge exactly how good Michigan State is when they beat up on a team like Central Michigan, but playing Maryland and Washington this month, we're going to know really quickly how legitimate the Spartans are and if they will be a player in the Big Ten East, but um, at least from a one-game perspective, I really liked what I saw from the Spartans. Moving on to Saturday's slate of games, we had one Big Ten matchup on Saturday that was Ohio State at Indiana. 
We'll start off with the Hoosiers, and honestly, they were the complete opposite of what I was expecting out of them this year. I thought they'd get mowed over on defense. I thought Ohio State's offensive line would physically dominate them, and I thought they'd give up a lot of big plays on defense, but I also thought they'd make some big plays of their own to keep the game at least sort of close for the first half or so, Um, but I was entirely wrong. Aaron Casey, linebacker, I had him as my preseason third team All-Big Ten linebacker, but I think I undersold him. He looked like an All-American on Saturday. He was everywhere, and all in all, their defensive front looked really stout. It was clear that the the additions they made via the portal this offseason are making an immediate difference. Uh, The secondary is still probably the weakness of this defense, but they weren't challenged much, and when they were, um, they really held their own against the best receiving core in college football. But going to the offensive side of the football of of this, I'm sorry, going to the offensive side Um, I think their quarterback situation looked dire on Saturday. I know they were going up against uh, one of the best defenses in all of college football, and they were two redshirt freshmen that had never started a game before, so it's hard to put a lot of stock into this game as far as predicting how the rest of the season will play out, but neither Taven Jackson nor Brendan Sorsby looked to have control of this offense. They neither looked comfortable. They both tried to run the option a good amount, but it's clear neither of them have the athleticism to really be um, elite running the option. Um, It looks like this offense is going to be all Jalen Lucas, which we kind of figured he is the best athlete they have on offense. He is a playmaker as a receiver, as a ball carrier, as a return man. But um, I was kind of hoping to see more out of this pass offense. I know Indiana has talented receivers, but um, the quarterbacks just couldn't get them the ball. And so it's hard to put a lot of stock into this game. They're very outmatched um, facing Ohio State's defense. But If Indiana wants any chance of getting to a bowl game this year, uh, they're going to need a lot more out of Taven Jackson or Brendan Sorsby. I'm moving over to Ohio State. I'll start off with the positive. Their defense was great. Um, Denzel Burke had a couple good pass breakups. Josh Proctor is a veteran safety who's been hurt a lot over the past few years, but um, he made a a few really great plays too. Um, The interior defensive line was it's incredibly deep and incredibly stout. Indiana could not get a yard of push against that interior line. A little concerned about the pass rush. They didn't get after the quarterback much, but also there weren't very many opportunities where Ohio State could pin their ears back and go after the quarterback. Um, But yeah, this defense looks like a top 10 unit in the country, and I'll stand by that. Buckeye defense looks great. On the offensive side of the football, I think some people were overblowing what we saw out of the Buckeyes offensively. Um, Kyle McCourt, honestly, I thought he played pretty well, a little vanilla, and I think there were a few occasions where he locked in on the receiver pre-snap a little too often and decided where he was going with the ball before it was snapped, but for the most part, he made the right decisions, he had a few really nice throws, and I blame, one, the offensive line, and two, the play calling more so than anything for Ohio State's offensive struggles. It was clear Ryan Day was nervous about opening up this offense, I don't know if that was you know, due to his confidence in the quarterback situation, or if he just doesn't want to show a lot leading up to Notre Dame, probably a combination of both, but there was just a refusal to um, open up this offense for Kyle McCord, and I think that really um, hindered Ohio State's ability, but also the offensive line. They didn't necessarily get beat a whole lot, but there was a lot of miscommunication. Um, A lot of instances where they were double teaming one guy and letting others run free, and um I think they, they need to get that short up before Notre Dame or else that's going to be a really long game for the Ohio State offense. And part of it is that I think Ryan Day was way too predictable with when they were running the ball. Indiana was kind of um, could tell when they were, when Ohio State was lining up to run the ball and they had a lot of guys running free unblocked. 
Um, but again, I, I blame the play calling more so than anything. So I think maybe this was um, a good opportunity to for Ryan Day to look in the mirror and um, you know put more trust into Kyle McCord because, like I said, I kind of liked what I saw from him. He isn't spectacular. He's not an NFL quarterback yet, but this was his um, his first shot as Ohio State starting quarterback. I think he made a few nice throws. He made good decisions for the most part, and he didn't lose Ohio State the football game, and that's the biggest thing. So I'm not worried about Ohio State's offense yet, but they play Youngstown State next weekend, and if they can't, you know, push Youngstown State around, and if they don't put up at least like 45 points, and if they don't start to air it out a little bit more, then I'll be concerned. But um, as far as week one goes, Ohio State's defense looks elite, and I trust Ryan Day um, and his staff and these players to to pick it up on the offensive side of the ball. So not hitting the panic button on Ohio State just yet. I also want to touch on the Iowa-Utah State game, because Iowa got off to a terrific start on Saturday. In the first quarter, they controlled the, both lines of scrimmage. They moved the ball with relative ease. Cade McNamara looked really comfortable. He looked he was delivering accurate balls. They jumped up to a 14-0 lead, and for a second there, I was thinking that Iowa looked like a, a top-10 team. I thought they might be able to look like a team that could win 10-11 games and go to Indianapolis with a potential playoff berth on the line. But then, after they went up 14-0, they were outscored 14-10 the rest of the way. Offensive line all of a sudden wasn't getting a push anymore. Caleb Johnson looked great to start the game, but um, all of a sudden, you know, he became kind of ineffective as a runner. The defensive line was really concerning. I thought this was going to be one of the best defensive lines in the Big Ten, but they did not play consistently at all. They had trouble getting after the quarterback. Um, but maybe most concerning of all was Cade McNamara did not look 100%. Uh, he had a non-contact knee injury in fall camp a few weeks ago. Iowa's kind of been hush-hush about it. They've been playing it close to the chest. I didn't think that McNamara would play this week. I thought they wanted to make sure that he stays healthy, but he played, and by all estimations at the beginning of the game, he was fully healthy, but as the game went on, it kind of looked like he was hobbled a bit. And honestly, I'm not sure this is something that'll get better throughout the season. It's probably, I'm no doctor, I'm not going to pretend to be, but I would imagine a knee injury like this doesn't just get better between games. It's probably going to get worse. Um, as we know, the defense is good. They have a really solid defense, definitely top half of the Big Ten, but they aren't quite as dominant as they were last year. And we knew that was going to be the case coming in. And Iowa's final three quarters offensively definitely raised some flags because this offense has to be significantly better than they were last year in order to compete for a Big Ten championship. They still put up 24 points. I mean, that, compared to last year, that's a win for them. I think they will get better. But, you know, after that first quarter, there were just a lot of red flags and they, they have a lot to clean up as a football team if they want to beat their rival Iowa State on the road this weekend. So that's one of the games that I'm going to be watching the closest because um, I think there's still a lot to figure out about this Iowa team. So I'm excited for that game this weekend. And there's one last game I want to talk about before I get into game of the week, team of the week, and give out some helmet stickers, and that's Toledo versus Illinois. Um, don't get me wrong, Toledo is a really good football team. I was tempted to put them in my preseason top 25. They were a really talented quarterback that it gave the Ohio State defense fits last year when they played. Um, and Illinois pulled out a win, 30-28. to 28. I, You can't be upset by starting 1-0. But I'm a little concerned about how they won that game because they had a lot of trouble on both lines of scrimmage. Um, some An area where I thought Illinois would really be able to lean on for some success this season. Um, on offensively, like I said, they just really couldn't get a consistent push. About one third of their rushing yards came on two carries. Um, and a lot of this offense fell on Luke Altmaier, who, to be fair, played really well in his first 
career start. Um, he's a new arrival from Ole Miss, and I thought he played really well. He played really comfortably, and I thought he got a lot better as the game went on. His fourth down throw to set Illinois up for that game-winning field goal was probably the throw of the weekend, um, mainly because the right tackle got absolutely abused, demolished, and embarrassed by a spin move. So Altmaier had about, I don't know, a second and a half, two seconds to throw that ball, and when he did, he was throwing it pretty blindly, and he launched it, you know, 30 yards downfield, an absolute dime for Casey Washington, and that kind of composure um, really stuck out to me. So I loved what I saw from Luke Altmaier, but guys, that offensive line is is shaky, and they're really going to need to lean on a strong offensive line if they want to compete through the Big Ten West, because there are some great defenses in that division. And defensively, you know, there were some um, growing pains, I think, in the back end of that defense. You knew that was going to happen when you play a talented quarterback like this, and you have so many starters and so many, uh, so much elite talent to replace. What was concerning to me was the absence of Jerzen Newton and Keith Randolph. Um, those are supposed to be two of the best defensive linemen, not just in the Big Ten, but the entire country. Um, Jerzen Newton was my preseason pick to be Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, and they were just kind of MIA the entire game. Um, and so that's kind of, you, you figure two veterans like that, um, the law firm, as they call themselves, you know, will pick it up and um, improve as the season goes on and return to their, you know, former selves. But um, I think that was kind of a red flag. Uh, you know, listen, Illinois beat a good team. They're 1 0. Um, so I don't want to, you know, read too much into, um, a, a win, but I'm a little concerned about how, how Illinois won that game. So, um, I still think they'll be in the thick of the big 10 West race, but definitely a little concerned about how both lines of scrimmage played in that game. But Luke Altmaier looks like a terrific addition at quarterback. And, um, I think he'll be able to help kind of keep this offense's head above water as they try to figure out that run game. So for the game of the week, I'm going with Fresno State versus Purdue. That was noon on Saturday. Uh, the Fresno State Bulldogs won 39 to 35, um, which is unfortunate for Purdue starting off 0-1 in the Ryan Walter- Walters era, but it was an absolutely fantastic game. I was flipping back and forth between Fresno State Purdue and TCU Colorado, and it was so much fun. Both games were barn burners back and forth, high scoring, and it was just a lot of fun to watch as a college football fan. Um, so for Purdue, like I said, it's, it's hard to feel good after a loss, especially one that was as close as this game was. But all in all, I felt like the Ryan Walters era got off to a pretty good start. Um, you know, first of all, Fresno State's a really good team. They won 10 games last year. Wouldn't be surprised if they topped that win total this year. This very well could be a top 25 team that Purdue just narrowly lost to. Um, so I'll start off on the defensive side of the ball. Um, you know, what I didn't like to see were the cornerbacks. I know that was kind of a, a weak a question mark for this defense. Um, but they were getting burnt a lot throughout the game. Luckily, they don't have to worry about an offense like Fresno State's in the Big Ten West, so I guess if they were to have an Achilles heel on this defense, you'd probably want you know, their cornerbacks to be one as far as competing in, the, in their division. Um, but you know, hopefully they get better throughout the season. Ryan Walters um, is a great cornerback coach, so you figure you could get some better play as the season goes on. Uh, the d- defensive front for Purdue got off to a terrific start. Kidron Jenkins looks like an absolute stud. He was all over the field, could not be blocked. But that Purdue front wore, really got worn down as the game went on. It was about halfway through the third quarter where um, you could tell Fresno State was finally starting to get a push on that offensive line. And I think Purdue was just gassed and they could not stop him. A big reason for that was because Fresno State dominated time of possession. They had the ball for 36 and a half minutes. Um, so hard to blame for Purdue for getting worn down like that. Um, but that was definitely a concern moving forward because they're going to play some great offensive lines and 
some great running games in the Big Ten. Um, offensively, I loved what I saw from Hudson Card. I think he's the real deal. Deion Burks had made a few amazing plays at wide receiver. He's a playmaker. I didn't know they had at that position. Um, <clears throat> and I think the offensive line pass protected uh, really well. Hudson Card, I felt like for the most part, didn't get touched a whole lot. He, they really kept him upright. But the offensive line could not get any room at all for Devin Mockaby. I had really high expectations for Devin Mockaby. He still may end up having a terrific season, but um, I was also dis- a little disappointed with his play. I thought there were a few instances where he was trying to juke for the big play and, and make guys miss instead of just using his strength because he is a, a strong guy. He is a load to bring down. I thought there were instances where he could have just kind of lowered his shoulder and gotten some tough yards. Instead, he was trying to dance around and ended up losing yards in plays where I didn't think he necessarily had to. So, you know, there are things I liked about Purdue, things I didn't. Um, they played a really good team. Um, you know, it sucks losing in such a, a tight fashion like that, but I think as far as a loss goes, I think Purdue can feel pretty good. The only thing is that they travel on the road to Virginia Tech. I think the kind of the baseline for what Boiler fans were hoping this year was a 6-6 six and six season, get to a bowl game, win it, finish with a winning record, and have some positive momentum heading into 2024. But now with this loss, I kind of feel like this game at Virginia Tech this weekend is a must win if Purdue wants to get to a bowl game. So I think being in that position this early in the season um, definitely isn't ideal. But as far as um, Ryan Walters go goes, uh, I loved what he brought to the defense. I think they'll get better. And it's kind of similar with what I said about Nebraska. You know, the signs that Purdue's heading in the right direction is there. It just might not come to fruition this season. Um, I think, you know, Purdue's brightest years are ahead of them. But still have a really good chance to get to a bowl game. And in fact, when I watched that game, they looked like a a winning football team. So I still think Purdue has a great chance to get to a bowl game this season. And for week one's team of the week, I'm going to go with the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, who beat Northwestern 24-7 in their home opener. Um, And now listen, one of the takeaways from this game very well could be that Northwestern is just as bad, if not worse, than I thought they'd be coming into this season. They were just completely overwhelmed from the get-go. But this is um, a matchup that, you know, Rutgers has the better roster, they're more experienced, they have the better coaching staff. Uh, I think this is a game that Rutgers kind of needed to win decidedly um, to get off to the right foot and hopefully make a bowl game this season. And they did just that. Um, they smothered them from the get-go. They were clearly the better team. They jumped up 24-0 in the third quarter and really put that game away. Defensively, I wouldn't be surprised if Rutgers has a top-five defense in the Big Ten this year. They were all over the place. Granted, this is probably one of their weaker tests of the season. Um, but I liked what I saw from Rutgers' offense, honestly. They had a, a decent push um, from their offensive line. Gavin Wimsat, probably a player of the game. He didn't do anything spectacular, but he delivered, you know, he made good decisions. He didn't have any turnovers. He had just under 200 total yards, two touchdowns, 82, um, an 82 QBR. And like I said, I think no turnovers was the biggest win of the day for them. And Gavin Wimsat looks to be much more in control of this offense than he ever did in his previous two years at Rutgers. So good things ahead potentially for Rutgers. And I think um, they played Temple this weekend. I think once again, Rutgers should win um, pretty decidedly there. And then they host Virginia Tech. And if they can win that game, start off 3-0, Rutgers has a really, really good chance of making a bowl game because Wagner is their other non-conference game. Um, they go on the road to Indiana, which would be a tough win. But based off what I saw week one, Rutgers is the better team. I would expect them to win that game. And then all of a sudden, Rutgers is one upset away from hitting six wins. Um, and you look, they they finish the season at home against Maryland. They also host Michigan State in the middle of October. 
Um, I think both of those could be potential upsets for Rutgers, and you know they just have to get one of them to hit six wins. So um, I'm, I don't want to jinx myself right now, but I think Rutgers could surprise a lot of people this year. And I also wanted to give Rutgers Team of the Week honors because, to be frank, I'm not sure how many more opportunities I'll have to do that um, unless they do pull off an upset that would springboard them to six wins. So it was a really good uh, first week for Greg Schiano attempting his second rebuild of Rutgers. I think they do seem to be heading in the right direction. And also, I think Rutgers really needed to win because they've just been absolutely dragged um, this offseason. You know, with all talks of the conference expansion, people saying, why does Rutgers belong in the Big Ten? They they, they lucked out. They don't deserve their The Big Ten uh, should drop them. And if we're being honest, Rutgers has been a net win for the Big Ten in every sport except for football. I know that's a big um, except, you know, kind of you have to be relevant in football in this day and age to be a, a profitable, successful, um, you know, ath- athletic program. Um, but I thought Northwestern deserves this win. They looked great. Um, and I think there's a chance that Rutgers makes a bowl game this year. And next, I want to give out some helmet stickers for spectacular performances across the Big Ten. I think we can run through these pretty quickly because we've already dissected a lot of the biggest games this past weekend. Uh, the first sticker I want to give out to, I already mentioned his name, Purdue linebacker, Kedron Jenkins. He had six tackles, a sack, and two tackles for losses against um, Fresno State. Was really a force and definitely Purdue's best defensive player in that game. I also want to give one to Indiana linebacker Aaron Casey. Like I said, I mentioned his game before. He had 11 tackles and a tackle for loss and was in on a lot of um, other plays. He disrupted a lot of plays for that Buckeye offense. um, And so felt like he had more than just that one tackle for loss. Um, Another name I mentioned was Michigan State running back Nate Carter. He was kind of the the pulse for that Spartan offense this past Friday. He had 18 carries for 113 yards and a touchdown. That's almost six and a half yards per carry. He also added on a 21-yard catch. Um, And then a name that you might be familiar with if you listened last week, Minnesota wide receiver Daniel Jackson. I gave him a preseason helmet sticker as a player that you might not know who should have a big season. Uh, And he came up with it. He had nine catches for 68 yards and a touchdown for the Gophers Thursday against Nebraska, including that spectacular um, touchdown, um, the first touchdown of the year for Minnesota. And what was I really impressed me was that he kind of shrugged off uh, a couple of drops early off in the game pretty easily. The, the coaching staff clearly trusts him. They kept him in his game. He killed his, kept his head high and ended up, ended up leading the Gophers in catches. Again, nine catches for 68 yards and a touchdown. Good stat line for who might end up being uh, Minnesota's leading receiver this year. I also want to give a sticker to Iowa linebacker Jay Higgins. He was kind of really the only player I felt like in that Iowa defensive front that showed up. He had 16 tackles in that game and a pass breakup. And I think that 16 tackles is even more impressive considering, you know, the possessions were way down across the board in college football this um, this weekend, thanks to the, the clock no longer stopping after first downs. Um, so, you know, I have some concerns about that Iowa defense, but Jay Higgins seems to have really stepped up um, and is the new premier linebacker for that Iowa defense. I'd like to give another sticker to Ohio State tight end Cade Stover. He was the highest graded tight end per PFF in the entire Big Ten. He had five catches for 98 yards. He was a force in run blocking as he always is. And, you know, again, you know, the big story from Ohio State's game this past weekend was, I guess, the lack of an aerial attack and how Emeka Abuka and Marvin Harrison combined for just five catches 
And, you know, as this offense starts to get its feet under them, they start to get more comfortable and they start to air it out a little bit more. It does seem like Cade Stover is kind of the security blanket for for Kyle McCord. So he could be in for a really big season, but he was kind of the, the lone highlight in Ohio State's pass offense this past weekend. And I want to give another helmet sticker to Michigan wide receiver Roman Wilson. He had six catches for 78 yards and three touchdowns, which is impressive considering he had four touchdowns all of last year. I know Michigan really kind of took their foot off the gas after um, the first half, but Roman Wilson seems like Michigan's wide receiver one. I thought it kind of might go towards Cornelius Johnson, but Roman Wilson is one of the better players on this Michigan offense. And I think if they're going to win a national championship, as I said, this entire summer, their offense has to air it out a little bit more. They have to take more downfield shots and they have to have a receiver who can go win one-on-one battles consistently. And Roman Wilson might be that guy. And then the final helmet sticker I want to give out for week one is Illinois defensive back Miles Scott. Um, you know, this is his second year getting playing time for Illinois, and he has some big shoes to fill in that secondary. And he stepped up. He had six tackles, a, pa- a pass breakup, but most importantly, that pick six that really got Illinois back into the game. It was a you know spectacular about what a 45 yard return he had on that pick six. Um, and it was important because this was in the third quarter. Illinois was down 19 to seven. Toledo had the ball. They were starting to move it, and it kind of se- felt like the game was getting away from Illinois really fast. But then Miles Scott got, made that play, um, showed some great speed getting to the end zone there, um, and kind of got Illinois back in that game and helped springboard them to an eventual eventual 30 to 28 win. Okay, that should pretty much do it for recapping week one of the Big Ten football season. Before we pivot and preview the week two slate of games, I just have a few thoughts on college football as a whole and what we saw out of some teams uh, not in the Big Ten in week one. In case you missed it, last week I talked about how this season, 2023, is the season we desperately, desperately need the 12-team playoff. And that's because there doesn't seem to be an overwhelmingly dominant team or tier of teams in college football this year. The highest level of college football really seems to be as deep as it's ever been. Um, You know, going back to probably 2007, you know, that historically wild season of college football. Um, I'm looking at my top 25 for week two, which, by the way, you can check out our latest Big Ten Power Rankings and uh, our latest top 25 rankings on our website, thefloorslap.com. But my number one team, at least for the time being, is still Georgia. But then I go all the way down to you know, number 15 is Oklahoma, who had one of the most dominant victories over Arkansas State in week one. And even number 16, North Carolina, who kind of wiped the floor with South Carolina in a neutral site game in the second half. And in between Georgia and number 16, North Carolina, you have teams like Texas, who's going to have a chance to put their name on the map when they travel to Alabama this weekend. Tennessee looked pretty good. Oregon put up 81 points. Utah was shorthanded and dominated uh, Florida. USC has the best player in college football. Notre Dame has been dominant on both sides of the ball with the addition of Sam Hartman um, through their first two games. Ohio State and Penn State powers as always. Washington like had one of the most impressive wins over Boise State. Florida State, of course, dominated LSU and Alabama. Um, so there are just, I just listed off about 16 teams, um, all of which I wouldn't be shocked if they made a run at the college football playoff. And it's a shame that only four of those teams um, are going to have a chance. And I, and I left out some teams too. Um, but I think my opinion that there doesn't seem to be an overwhelmingly dominant team or, or group of teams this year, I think was only, um, kind of confirmed based off of what I saw in week one, you know, everyone's kind of going through growing pains. No one looked elite 
and there were a lot of sloppy starts. I mean, Georgia, um, they led only 7-0 late in the second quarter. Michigan only scored 7 points in the second half. Penn State uh, was only up 14-7 against West Virginia at halftime. Texas was only up 16-3 at Rice. Um, and there was just a lot of performances like that. And it's a shame that this isn't the year that um, we have the 12-team playoff, just as I said last week. But as far as kind of teams who I was most impressed with, Washington, definitely Michael Penix. I think he is playing as good a college football as um, anyone is right now. Um, they look spectacular just beating the brakes off of Boise State. I know this isn't the same Boise State team from like the BCS era, um, but you know it was still as impressive as, of a victory as there was. Um, Florida State, I mean, beat the absolute brakes off of LSU in their second half. Um, Florida State looks like a faster, bigger team. They looked more well-coached. They looked like they wanted the game more. And Florida State, all of a sudden, um, you know, was looking at potentially an undefeated season. They had one of the most impressive um, wins that I saw. And then, of course, Colorado. I know the entire college football world is talking about Deion Sanders in Colorado. I have him as number 18 in my rankings this week, which um, I guess I'm following suit with the, the hype train around them. But I do kind of want to pump the brakes. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it now, I feel like that might be a little too high for Colorado, um, mainly because they beat TCU, who, in my estimation, is a you know seven or eight win, maybe nine, if we're being really generous team this year. Um, and I honestly didn't really want to put TCU in my preseason top 25, but I felt like I had to out of respect. It felt like it would have been disrespectful to the Horned Frogs and what they accomplished last year to not at least include them in my preseason top 25 after getting to the national championship. But I think after watching that game, I'm pretty convinced that wasn't a top 25 team that Colorado narrowly, narrowly beat. Um, the fact that they only had was two or three penalties, I think, the entire game with an entirely new roster and coaching staff, I think, is a testament to how well Deion Sanders really can coach. They obviously have a few dogs, and they're going to be a real player in this Pac-12 race. But, you know, after the game, Deion Sanders was sitting there calling out reporters, talking about how no one believed. And I really wanted to say, like, it is week one, my dude. You beat a team that's probably not going to see the top 25 the rest of the season. You know, you're here earlier than expected it looks like you're going to make at minimum a bowl game um and it looks like colorado is here to stay as long as Deion sanders is around in the college football playoff era it expands to 12 teams next year and you know colorado should be in the thick of that race it's really impressive what they're doing but he's it was sitting up there after the game acting like they just won um the pac-12 championship or they just got their birth to the college football playoff and it is week one a lot of things can go wrong. They're going to play a much better defense this weekend in Nebraska. Um, and, you know, what happens all of a sudden if they get overwhelmed, have four turnovers, and, and get beat by a team that had one of the sloppiest games in the entire country in Nebraska um, this past weekend? So I do want to pump the brakes on them a little bit. Um, but, you know, enough about Colorado. I know we have so much more to figure out about this college football season. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on was just kind of the balance of the conferences that are, that's going on this year. But because I, I think after week one, it is pretty clear that the SEC is not the best te best conference in college football anymore. I think over the past, you know, um, five years or so, I think the gap between the SEC and the Big Ten and everyone else has kind of been shrinking because um, there was a stretch there, you know, from the um, BCS era into the early years of the college football playoff that the SEC was far and away the best college football conference. Um, I think the Big Ten has kind of caught them. And this year, it seems like the SEC just is, is not what they used to be. I mean, only three teams played relevant college football teams and all three of them got thoroughly dominated. 
Utah, um, you were shorthanded, beat Florida, um, you know, beat the brakes off them, really. Um, and then we have South Carolina um, getting outscored by uh, four, you know, 14 to 3 in the second half of a neutral site game against North Carolina. And then you had um, Sunday night, like I talked about before, LSU just getting embarrassed in that second half against Florida State. And if I'm being honest, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Alabama and Georgia are the best teams in college football again this year. It wouldn't shock me, considering how good the rest of the conference looks. Um, if Alabama and Georgia are both 12-0 going into the SEC championship, they both make the playoff and they both face off for the national championship. That wouldn't shock me at all. But just because you have two elite teams does not mean that you are the best conference. When you're evaluating conferences, you have to look top to bottom, and the rest of the SEC just does not look good. I think the Big Ten, uh, we still have a lot to learn about them. They have a few really interesting matchups this weekend, which we'll talk about, and that'll kind of determine, I think, um, where they stand and how good the Big Big Ten really is this year. But at least early on, I think the Pac-12 is far and away the best conference in the country. I mean, you have USC has the best player in, in, in college football. Utah, I already mentioned, you know, Cam Rising hopefully should get healthy and elevate that team to be even better. Washington with Michael Penix, I think he's a bona fide Heisman contender. They're going to be hard for anyone to stop. They travel to East Lansing in a couple weeks. That should be an interesting game. Um, Oregon put up 80, 81 points. Bo Nix, um, you know, should have Oregon again in the thick of that race. And then we have Colorado, who I already mentioned, and Oregon State, who um, added DJ Uyunglele from Clemson in the transfer portal. And, you know, they, I think they dominated San Jose State a little better than USC did. Um, <clears throat> so they're just so, so deep. And it's a shame, uh, going back to what I said about the 12 team playoff needing to be this year, it's a shame that we don't have it in 2023 because. Uh, I'd be willing to bet anything that the Pac-12 is just going to cannibalize themselves again and they are going to have a two, maybe even three loss conference champion. I just think that the gap between USC, Utah, um, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Oregon State, um, and even, you know, you could throw UCLA in there. I, I You know, they beat a good Coastal Carolina team um, in decisive fashion this weekend. I think they you can group them in there. I just think the, the margin between those teams is so small. I don't think any of those teams is head and shoulders better than any of the other teams. Um, and I just think they they can't they won't be able to help but lose a couple games against these really great teams that they're playing. Um, and it's a shame. I think the Pac-12, the way they're playing this year the, and the way the season plays out, I think they deserve a chance to compete for a national championship. And it just won't happen because we have this stupid four-team playoff again this year. And, you know, we're probably going to see two SEC teams, Big Ten champion, um, maybe a second Big Ten team, maybe Florida State, but it's just going to be the the same Blue Bloods that we always see in the playoff. And it's a shame that this incredible conference in the last year of this conference won't have a chance to compete for a, a championship. It is a real shame. And the last thing I want to touch on before previewing the week two slate of Big Ten games is is just how horrible, how objectively bad this new clock rule is for the game of college football. In case you're living under a rock or didn't get a chance to watch any college football games this past weekend, uh, the clock no longer stops to move the chains after first downs, with the exception of the final two minutes in the first and second half. So now, I mean, outside of those four minutes of the game, when when teams get a first down, the clock just keeps running. And it's horrible. It is objectively horrible because the games themselves are just as long. They're still going between three, three and a half hours, but now we're missing out on about, I don't know, I've seen some people estimate between 40 and 60 snaps. So, 
I mean, that's probably good for about, I want to say between five and 10 minutes of gameplay of actual just straight gameplay that we're missing out on. And that's all been replaced by commercials now. Um, it's, it's just kind of sickening. There are fewer possessions, fewer plays in games and, and also eliminates the chance for, you know, coming back from a deficit of more than two possessions in the fourth quarter. There just isn't time for it anymore. And I think in the NFL, they can get away with the running clock because the game is just such a high level in the NFL. Every drive, every play is so precise. Like the gap between the quality of football we see in college and NFL is just astronomical. I think it might be bigger than any jump between the college and professional level that we have in American sports. And I think when you have precise football like that, it's okay to have, you know, every team have between five and eight possessions a game. You can get away with that. At the college level, you can't. The college level, you rely on big plays. You rely on massive comebacks. That's why it's such a popular sport. And now that's all being ripped away. And it's just, it's insane. You're sitting down for, like I said, three to three and a half hours still, but you're getting less football by a significant margin. And it was only week one, and I could, I think the difference with this clock was noticeable. It was palpable, and it's, it's a shame. And hopefully there's enough outcry over this through the rest of the season that we can maybe change the rule going into next season, but I have a hard time seeing that happen because, like I said, we're getting a, a solid 45 minutes to an hour more of commercials this year, which just means more money in the school's pocket. So why would any school agree to going back to um, going to that rule? So. I think it's a shame, you know, maybe we'll get used to it. Maybe offenses will start to move a little bit faster to compensate for um, the the few possessions they have. But, you know, one week of college football in, I knew I was going to hate this rule when they announced it this offseason. I did not think I was going to hate it this much and it was going to have this big of an impact on the season. So who knows? Maybe we'll get used to it. Maybe it won't be that big of a deal. But one week in and this rule change objectively sucks. So now we can start looking forward to week two of the 2023 Big Ten football season. And there are a lot of really exciting non-conference matchups uh, throughout the Big Ten this week. Uh, and I'm going to cover on most of them when I go through my uh, five locks, five Big Ten betting locks here in a bit. But the one game I'm not going to touch on um, in that segment is the Illinois-Kansas game. Um, in Kansas, Friday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN2. That's a game I'm really, really excited for. Um, I'm officially picking, um, Illinois to cover plus three, but I'm not confident enough that pick to make it one of my locks. But what I am looking for in that game, uh, offensively first for Illinois is if they can start to get any success on the ground game. Uh, I touched on it earlier, about a third of their rushing yards last week came on only two carries offensive line really struggled in run blocking and in pass protection. So I'm curious if, uh, they can start to, I guess, take some pressure off of Luke Altmaier's shoulders and and make this a more balanced offense because based off of what I saw week one, Altmaier, Altmaier is a baller. He can carry this offense um, and keep their head above water until this uh, running game starts to get going. And they're going to need it to get going if they want to compete in the West. So curious if they can start to find any success um, against Kansas because, you know, on the road in prime time, they're going to need to run the ball in order to kind of control the clock, quiet that crowd a little bit. And defensively, I'm looking, again, up front for them. Uh, Jerzan Newton and Keith Randolph, I'm looking for them to make Jalen Daniels' life hell. Because this is a Kansas team that beat uh, Missouri State 48-17 last week, had over 500 yards of total offense. And Missouri State, I know you probably will 
um, shrug that off pretty quickly, but they're no slouch. Remember, Bobby Petrino is their coach. He won uh, Missouri Valley Coach of the Year a couple years ago. Um, they're definitely no slouch, and they dominated them, went up up and down the field with ease. I definitely think this Illinois defense is going to get better throughout the season, but we're only in week two. I don't know how much improvement we can really expect from week one to week two, especially with back-to-back tough opponents like Illinois is facing. So I think they're really going to have to hope that uh, Randolph and Newton step up and make plays like they didn't last week. But now moving on to uh, my five Big Ten betting locks for week two of the season. Again, last week, if you listened and uh, listened into this podcast and followed along, I went four and one on my locks. Um, so hopefully it was a profitable weekend for you. And hopefully I can uh, strike gold again this weekend. The, the first pick that I'm really, really confident, we're going to go to the Purdue-Virginia Tech game. Um, first, before I get into my pick, what I'm looking for uh, on for Purdue side is really just how they respond to that season, o- season opening loss. There was a lot of hope, um, hype around this Purdue team heading into the season, and they played a really good Fresno State team to open the season and came really close to winning. So just, you know, can Ryan Walters get these guys motivated for another tough matchup, this time on the road? Um, defensively for them, I'm really looking at this secondary and seeing if there's any signs of improvement from week one to week two. The Hokies have two great receivers in Ali Jennings and Jalen Lane. They also have a veteran quarterback in Grant Wells, who's been a three-year starter, and he played really, really well in the opener, one of his best career games. Um, so they're going to be challenged again. So curious if they can come up with, you know, they're going to give up yards. They're going to give up a a few big plays. You kind of know that's going to come, but can they, um, make a few big plays? Can they get some turnovers to compensate for that? Um, offensively, like I said before with Illinois, I'm looking for the same thing with Purdue. I'm looking for this ground game. I'm confident in Hudson card. Um, and I think he's going to end up being a really great quarterback for Purdue. And I think again, he can kind of keep this air raid offense heads above water, but they really need more out of Devin Mockaby, especially going on the road. Old Dominion, um, managed to average over four yards per carry against Virginia tech last week. And this is not you know, a very good old Dominion team, as I'm sure you would assume, um, so th- there isn't much of an excuse, I think, for Purdue to find more success on the ground. But I think this is going to be another barn burner. I think this is going to be one of the most entertaining games of the weekend. Purdue's defense should improve throughout the year, like I said with Illinois. But again, this is a really tough turnaround. Two tough matchups back to back. I think Purdue's defense should, uh, you know, probably give up a-, a lot of points again against Virginia Tech, to put it bluntly. Um, I'm confident in Hudson Card and Purdue's ability to put up points. Uh, on the other side of the ball. Um, so honestly, I think this game will play out similarly to last week. Uh, I'm not confident enough in Purdue's performance week one to take them to cover. Instead, the over-under is at 49 and a half. Um, and I seem, I think that's a lock. I think this game is going to go well over 50. Uh, I think I'm definitely confident that both teams are going to get over 20 points. And so you just need a few, um, few extra points from there to, to be able to hit the over. So uh, definitely confident in Purdue, Virginia Tech over 49 and a half. Before my second betting lock, we're going to go to the Iowa-Iowa State game. Um, in this matchup, I'm first and foremost going to be really monitoring uh, Cade McNamara's health. Again, it did not look like he was fully healthy week one. Kirk Ferentz today even said that he, QB sneaks and bootlegs are pretty much out of the question uh, for Cade McNamara with his current health situation. So I'm going to be eyeing that leg really closely. Is he willing to run? Is he even able to run? You know, can he plant okay? Um, cause that's really gonna, the season lies in the balance with McNamara's health. If he goes down, so do their hopes of a Big Ten West crown. Um, and you know, probably, um, kind of sense a theme here, but I'm again looking for improved play along the line of scrimmage for, um, 
for Iowa. Neither one of those groups, the offensive line or the defensive line, necessarily impressed me week one. Um, but anyway, Iowa's three and a half point favorites on the road in this game. That seems a bit excessive. Honestly, I was expecting this be to be more of a pick 'em, at least based off of the, how the the week one results went. I'm still pretty confident that Iowa will get this win, but by more than a field goal, I'm definitely not confident in that. So I'm going to stay away from the spread in this game as well. Instead, look at that over-under. It's at 36.5, which seems really, really low, and it definitely is. Um, but again, you know, Iowa unders last year went as low as 33, 34 in a lot of games. I cashed in on a lot of those. I'm going to keep that trend going. We won money on it last week. Why not? Also, if you look at the, the history of this Iowa-Iowa State game, three of the past four matchups, the under for it have gone under 36.5 total points. Um, I think both of these teams have really great defenses, and both of them have offenses that struggled in Week 1. Just based off the identities of these two teams, I don't think there's any reason to think this game will be anything other than a 13-10 type game, I'm talking, you know, 16-10, 17-13, something in that range. Um, you know, as long as this over under stays above 35, I'm going to be really confident in, in taking that under. And for my third lock, we're going to go to one of the premier matchups of the entire weekend, Nebraska at Colorado and their home opener. You know, that environment is going to be really something special for the Huskers. I'm interested to see if they can find their footing in the run game. I know I'm kind of repeating the same story here, but that's really the identity of this Nebraska offense is, and you know, the stats say that they ran the ball pretty well last week, but a lot of that came on the back of Jeff Sims and a lot of scrambling and a lot of improvising by him. So I need to see if they can get more of an offensive line push and if guys like Gabe Irvin and Anthony Grant can bust a few runs and take the load off of Jeff Sims. Um, and, you know, all in all, just not in just the run game, I'm also curious if Nebraska's offense can make some more big plays and also avoid mistakes. I think accomplishing all three are going to be really difficult, but this Colorado defense is definitely susceptible. Um, and defensively for Nebraska, I'm curious how the 3-3-5 holds up against this elite Colorado offense that already looks to be in midseason form, particularly the secondary for the Huskers. Again, I think that's the weakness of the um, the defense. They held up against an offense that, you know, wasn't necessarily in midseason form with uh, Minnesota. Their aerial attack was, you know, rather underwhelming. But I think Nebraska's secondary definitely held up better than I thought. Um, and based off of what I saw in week one, I think this Nebraska defense is a significant step up in competition from TCU's defense. Um, there's also potential for an emotional letdown for Colorado. I know so much went into that game for them, and there was so much talking after, and every, the whole spotlight of college football is on Boulder, Colorado right now. And so there's a lot of pressure to, to keep that going heading into week two. So I think an emotional letdown is definitely plausible, and maybe just you know being tired too. There's a lot of guys that played a lot of snaps um in last week's tight game against TCU so I really don't see this game being nearly as high scoring um part of that has to do with the letdown of Colorado and how I think Nebraska's defense um does match up better against Colorado I think that 3-3-5 is more adept to to play a team like Colorado um but also, you know, this Nebraska offense is far from elite. I don't think they're really capable of running up the score right now. Um, I don't think they're a super well-balanced offense. And I think they're going to try to control the clock and keep that Buffalo um, offense sidelined. And the over-under right now is at 59.5. It might go up even more. I think that's way too high. I think this is going to be a little sloppier. I think we're going to see a few more mistakes from the Colorado offense. Uh, I think Nebraska keeps it close. I I'm not confident enough. Either way in the spread again, but 59.5 is way too high uh, for me in this game. I'm going to take the under with absolute confidence.
Next, we're going to move to Piscataway, New Jersey, where the Scarlet Knights are going to be hosting Temple. Uh, for Rutgers, I'm curious to see if their defense can maintain the shine they had against Northwestern against a much more competent Temple offense. This definitely um, it isn't an elite offense by any means, but I think they have their, um, you know, to put it bluntly, I think they have their ship put together much more than Northwestern does right now. So I think it's going to be a, a bigger test, especially for that secondary. Um, you know, guys like Max Melton, how do they, how does, how do they hold up against more complete receivers and can, um, you know, he force a few turnovers for, uh, the Rutgers defense. I'm also curious to see if Gavin Wimsat can continue, you know, his great week one performance into week two. Can he continue to show, you know, signs that he's maturing and maybe even win this game with his arm? Because Temple allowed only 74 rush, uh, rush yards last week at two and a half yards per carry. And, you know, that's at Rutgers MO. Um, Kyle Monongai had a few good carries, but, you know, he still averaged fewer than four yards a carry on the game last week. So um, I think this game is going to be a little bit tighter than the, the, the cakewalk. Rutgers had against Northwestern last week so you know it might fall on Gavin Wimsat's shoulder to, to make a few plays down the stretch to get this win for Rutgers but I think both Rutgers and Temple have offenses that are a little bit one-dimensional um, although on Temple's side it's really their run game that struggled in week one um, but again I, I I was shocked to see that this over-under was at 46 and a half um, you know again Rutgers is about nine nine and a half point favorites right now I think that's a little bit too much and again, I think this is going to be another sloppy game. I've been kind of maybe reciting the same script over and over for a few of these games, but 46 and a half looks a lot, uh, looks pretty high to me. I don't think both of these teams are going to hit 20. And I think this is probably going to be a one possession game. Um, so I'm pretty confident in the, in the under 46 and a half hitting for Temple versus Rutgers. And finally, for my fifth and final Big Ten betting lock of the week two, I'm going to go to the Wisconsin-Washington State game uh, at Washington State. For Wisconsin in this matchup, I'm really curious to see if Tanner Mordecai can start to show signs of improvement because he really has not impressed me so far. I've been pretty vocal about this going back to the spring. You know, what he what he demonstrated in the spring game, what I heard about him coming out of fall camp, and then what he put on the field in week one has not been good enough for a Wisconsin team that is thinking Big Ten championship. So I'm curious to see if Tanner Mordecai can start to click with a pretty good group, good group of receivers that Wisconsin has. Um, the Cougars last week against Colorado State gave up 320 pass yards. So I think there's definitely an opportunity for Wisconsin to open up this offense and, you know, kind of show what Luke Fickle ultimately wants this offense to look like. And that's a more well-balanced um, team. Um, on defense, I'm curious how the Badgers secondary holds up against a really, really great quarterback in Cameron Ward. Um, I think this back end of the defense is definitely the biggest question mark. And, you know, Ward is a quarterback who completed over 75 of his passes last week for over 450 yards and three touchdowns. Um, yeah, I think this is also going to be a good test to see if Wisconsin's offensive line is as good as I thought it would be coming into the season as, and as good as they looked in week one. Washington State only gave up 37 yards rushing last week. Um, so I think it's going to be a good learning opportunity to see how good this Wisconsin team really can be after, I think, an up-and-down uh, win against Buffalo last week. Um, so I expect a tight back-and-forth game. I was leaning towards the under originally, again, to kind of com com complete my theme for the week, but it shot up a lot. It's up to 58.5 right now. That's a little bit too high for me, especially for a team that I think early in the season still, um, Wisconsin's going to continue to lean on the run, continue to lean on Braylon Allen and Ches Malusi, one of the country's best running back duos and least talked about duos. So that over-under is a little bit too high for me, but Wisconsin has stood pat as a 6.5-point favorite, and I think this is going to be a tight game 
game again. I think Wisconsin ultimately rides their offensive line to a win, but I think Cameron Ward and Washington State keep it within a possession. You know, a road game under uh, um, in prime time for Wisconsin, it's definitely a tough ask in Luke Fickle's second game. So as long as this line stays above six, I'm very confident in Washington State covering. And that is going to do it for this week's edition of the Floor Slap College Football Podcast. I really enjoyed recapping week one of the college football season with you guys and really looking forward to a stacked week two slate of games we have. If you enjoyed this podcast, there's ton more, tons of more content for you guys. Uh, we have a website, thefloorslap.com, where we post college football and college basketball articles covering the Big Ten and beyond. Uh, for football, our week two Big Ten power rankings are up as well as our week two top 25 and week two Big Ten betting guide. Uh, last week, if you followed along with us, we posted a comprehensive betting guide for week one, and it should have won you a lot of money if you did. So hopefully we'll strike gold again and have a, a profitable weekend. Um, and follow us on Twitter at the floor slap. We tweet out, you know, our opinions, of course, and tweet out more big 10 betting picks and news in the football and basketball world. So it's been a pleasure going through this episode with you guys. Hope you enjoy week two of the college football season, and I will catch you next week.